Are you recording that? Yeah, great. All right, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading from the ESV. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Please be seated. Thank you, Chris, uh, for reading scripture this morning. And uh, if you haven't already guessed, uh, we're here in Matthew chapter 1. And we are now entering into the most wonderful time of the year, right? Every night when I go home, there seems to be more and more Christmas lights. Uh, It's like our neighbors are just, you know, glowing even more. And the boys are all excited. The little ones, Christmas Christmas lights here and there. And Daddy, where are our Christmas lights? And well, because we travel on the uh, years that every other year than the years that we travel, we don't put up a lot of Christmas decorations. And I know it's kind of uh, Grinchy to sound that way, but that's just trying to be frugal, right? Uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, according to Andy Williams. Um, and I'm certain that we've all put away our scales uh, in anticipation for cookies uh, and sweets, and we'll resume the diet next year. That's why New Year's resolutions occur, right? We're gonna, that's when we're going to diet. And then we don't, right? I've always loved Christmas. Uh, It's that time of year that when you ask mom for more toothpaste, she responds with, okay, but it's going to be part of your Christmas. Uh, Kids are excited with anticipation. Parents longing for a break. The radio has been playing these same songs for two months. But it's the greatest season of all. And I love it. I love Christmas. Um, uh, this year, I get to celebrate it with my family in North Carolina. My brother comes down from Maine uh, with his five kids, and we have four kids, and my brother lives in North Carolina, has three kids, and my parents, and so we have eight adults and 12 children in one house for two weeks. It's the most wonderful time of the year. This also marks my sixth uh, Christmas season as a pastor, and just last week I was talking with uh, another pastor in the area, and we were talking about this time of year. We're talking about messages, and uh, he said he was facing the same dilemma. How do you keep coming up with Christmas messages year after year? I mean, the story is the same, and we've heard about it since we were little. 
We talked about, he and I talked about ones that we've done in the past. Like last year we did the songs of Christmas. uh, Or he talked about doing the characters of Christmas. And then we jokingly talked about some series that we could do if time allowed. Like the pronouns of Christmas. You know, who is the he in this verse? Or making each Sunday about a different Christmas movie. Next Sunday is the Muppet Christmas Carol Christmas, you know, or something like that. How do you come up with something new about the greatest story ever told. And it's not a story, it's a true event. Well, I will say this, there's nothing that I can share with you today that perhaps you haven't already heard a thousand times. But I also know that whether I've heard it once or twice or hundreds of times before, it's still so amazing for me to think that God came to earth and he took on human flesh and he provided for me a way of salvation for eternity. And that baby in the manger is the Son of God. And I, and I know that the verses are all the verses about the nativity. And I, I can sing the songs and I can picture in my mind the different people, the shepherds, the angels, the stable. And it still just brings a joy upon my heart to know that this time of year he came for me. So this morning I just want to spend a little time uh, talking about maybe someone that we don't often talk about during the Christmas season. Oh, he's there in the nativity sets. And as we found out even in our family, as we were setting up the nativity set at our home, we confuse him. Is this one of the shepherds or is this Joseph? Which one? You know, we always can. Mary we get, you know, or in the shepherd. But we're like, is this, is this Joseph? Oh, no, I think that's the shepherd. Oh, well, maybe this is Joseph. You know, it, it, he's the forgotten man of Christmas. We have him there helping Mary. And as you already know from our scripture reading, we're speaking this morning about Joseph. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts today. Lord, we know that the, 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 the advent is here. The, the, the moment that you came to earth, the fullness of time had come. And you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those that were under the law, Lord. To redeem us from our sin. And Lord, as we study this man today, Lord, I pray that you will encourage us, challenge us. Father, I pray that we would draw closer to you and your Holy Spirit would just surround us with your love. We love you so much and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were given an opportunity to meet any person in the first Christmas story, who would you choose? And I was kind of thinking about that this week. It's not easy uh, to, if I wanted to meet some. I mean, there's some really interesting people involved in the Christmas story. Uh, Herod. I mean, you, you really want to meet Herod. Uh, he, that wicked guy sitting on the throne of Israel. I mean, he's scared that this little baby is coming to take away his glory. Maybe you want to meet him. Or the Magi, those wise men from the east, right? I have so many questions for them. Like, where did you come from? Uh, were you astrologers, or uh, how did you know about the star? I mean, what what's the whole deal surrounding that? Uh, I have one major question: How many are you? You know, because is there three? Is there more? Uh, maybe it's the innkeeper. I can always see the innkeeper in my mind. Uh, this this older man, he's uh, maybe frustrated whenever he has to turn people away, and I often wonder if he really knew who he turned away that night. Uh, there's just nothing given about him. Uh, maybe he was, what? we just don't know. Uh, the shepherds, here's something that you might not know about shepherds. Uh, nearly all the shepherds in Israel in modern times are teenagers, and many of them girls. 
Which gives me many reasons to think that the shepherds of the Bible time were not these old men that we see in tradition, but might be teens between 15 to 18 years old. There's people like Anna the prophetess, or Simeon, the old man who took the baby into his arms, or Mary. Wouldn't it be awesome to meet Mary, to sit and talk with her, and say, hey, Mary, did you know? Right? (laughs) Of all the people that seem to be great, I, I really think... I'd love to meet a different person, that forgotten man of Christmas, Joseph. Matthew writes about him here in, in chapter 1. Uh, there's a few things we know about him. He's betrothed to Mary. He's the foster parent of the Messiah. I think I would love to meet him and kind of hear more of his story. And the reason I call him the forgotten man of Christmas is because outside of the verses surrounding Jesus' birth, and then later on when he's about 12, there's never any mention again of this guy named Joseph. Not much is said about him. There are not many sermons preached about him. As a matter of fact, I looked through our hymn book uh, and tried to find him in songs of Christmas. I found that Mary was mentioned seven different times through different Christmas songs in our hymn books. Joseph was mentioned once. It was the last verse of Angels We Have Heard on High. Uh, And some hymn books don't even have that verse printed. So in some, there's not even any mention. There's no mention of him anywhere else. Actually, there are more songs about the shepherds than about any other person in the Christmas story other than Jesus, of course. So who is this guy? So what we learn from the genealogies, and you can go back in Matthew chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1, you have this long list of names uh, that, that we call the genealogy. This is Joseph's line. Uh, In those days, they were really known by their family. They were known by who they came from. Uh, There was not last names at that point. They They were, hey, I'm the son of this person. Who is the son of that person? And so we learn from the genealogies, if you look back in verse, I believe it's number 16, that Joseph's father was named Jacob. Interesting, similar to the Old Testament one. Uh, We also find, if you go farther back, uh, and to back to verse 6, that Joseph's ancestor was King David. So he's in the royal line, if you will. Uh, and it says David was the father of Solomon. Solomon the father. So we know he's in the royal family line. He's just farther and farther down. Uh, we learn that uh, from the story around Christmas that he's from uh, a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. But because he was in the loyal line of David, his family's hometown was a small town south of Jerusalem, or north of Jerusalem, just called Bethlehem. Uh, He was a carpenter by trade. We know that he and Mary were considered poor. Uh, When we see Jesus later on, uh, when he's eight days old, he's brought to the temple and he's he's presented uh, in the temple. And the evidence of the sacrifice that they bring, two turtle doves, uh, kind of signifies that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. We don't specifically know how old he was. I was reading some this week, and uh, there was quite a, some uh, debate on whether or not how old Joseph truly was. Uh, some have suggested that he was much older than Mary. Uh, maybe that he was around 40, and Mary was around 13, and I thought, that doesn't sound right. Most of the commentaries I read do seem to suggest, though, that Joseph was perhaps a young man, uh, maybe around 18 to 24 years old, uh, most likely because uh, he's seeking marriage here. Uh, He's in the betrothal period, kind of signifies some youth there. 
Uh, also, as we're going to see here this morning, that Joseph was a devout man of the law. He was religious. He understood. He wasn't a pagan. He wasn't someone who didn't believe, but he, he believed what the law of Moses said. So, that's it. That's all we really know about Joseph. But I want to study him a little bit more in detail here in Matthew chapter 1 and talk a little bit about this forgotten man of Christmas. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, we're introduced to this guy, Joseph. And it says that he's betrothed to a girl named Mary. Now, the word betrothed is sometimes translated in some translations, pledged to be married. Uh, we sort of connect it to our idea of engagement. In 2002, uh, August of 2002, uh, Cheyenne and I were engaged. And in that, in that, the events surrounding that, which is a fun story, if I could, you know, I would share all the details with you, uh, but I won't. Um, but I, I, I tied the ring to this little stuffed dog, and I put, gave it to her. She was sick, and she was, uh, and I said, here, I got this dog for you. And she saw the dog, and she's, oh, it's so cute. And then she saw the ring and screamed and threw it on the table. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I knelt down, and I did what all guys do. I said something that I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I, I don't remember what I said. I do remember at some point in that, I said, will you marry me? And of course, she said, sure, why not? No, she said, yes, uh, and we got engaged. Now, what was different in that moment? We were dating. We were boyfriend, girlfriend, if you will. Now we are fiancés. But according to the law of America, what's different? Nothing. We're not legally bound together. However, in Bible times, this custom was a little different than it is today. See, in those days, uh, most marriages were arranged by the parents, with or without the children's approval. Uh, the two sets of parents would meet together and maybe draw up some sort of formal marriage contract. When the contract was signed, some of you kids looking at your parents going, please don't do that, <laughs> right? When the contract is signed... The man and the woman are now pledged or betrothed to each other. They would enter into this period of time that would last upwards to a year. And at the end of that time, there would be this, this large public uh, village ceremony, if you will, a wedding ceremony similar uh, to our, our wedding today. Now, that, uh, that's similar to engagements. We, we, we plan the wedding, and then it leads up into this, this large wedding, you know, or small wedding or whatever, and then you enter into marriage. However, there are some differences. In the Bible times, this, this pledging of marriage or this betrothal, it was considered as sacred as marriage itself. It meant to, if you were to break off a betrothal, it would be, you would have to literally get a divorce to do it. And during that year, the couple would actually be called husband and wife, but they wouldn't live together. They wouldn't be together sexually. If a man died during the betrothal period, the wife would be considered a widow, even though the wedding never had taken place. So in essence, a betrothal was the same as being married, only you didn't live together until the wedding ceremony. 
And the idea behind the one-year waiting period, oftentimes the, the, the gentleman, the husband, was in his father's house working on building an addition to his father's house before he would then go take his bride to his new home. But during that one-year waiting period, it was often meant to be a time for testing commitment, testing faithfulness. As I mentioned, Cheyenne and I got married, uh, engaged in 2002. We didn't get married until the uh, spring of 2004. Uh, we were together one year in college, but then she graduated. And the last year, uh, from August of 2003 to May of 2004, we were separate. Uh, she was up here, and I was finishing up at college in Florida. And I can tell you that year apart was a testing commitment. We often talk about that was the worst year because we had to spend it apart. Uh, and then, uh, well, we're happily married in 15 years and unhappily married just as many years. No, um, but we've, we, we spent that year apart, and that was very difficult. Back in the Old Testament, the law was given, and Moses talked about this kind of stuff to the nation of Israel. And we're not going to spend the time studying Deuteronomy 22, but in that, he tells the people that there's stipulations about marriage. And basically, the law said this, if during this pledge time a woman was found to be pregnant that can only mean that she has been unfaithful to her husband and according to the law according to Moses in Deuteronomy 22 the penalty for that was that she be stoned to death that's it now here we are in verse 18 we find that Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant Found out she was pregnant. And he only knows one thing for certain. He's not the father. He doesn't need Mari to open some envelope. You are not the father. No. I mean, think about the situation here. I mean, what kind of words do you think would describe Joseph in a time like this? Can you imagine the conversation that took place? What did she say? What did he say? I often wonder, what was this conversation? We're just, we're not told. But in my mind, I, I kind of tried to put myself in Joseph's position. And I wondered, did Mary tell him about the angel that came to her and told her, you're going to have a child? And if she did tell him about the angel, did he blame, can you blame him for not believing her? You're like, well, how do you know he didn't believe her? Well, look at the next verse. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So we don't know exactly the words that took place, but if Joseph was like most guys that I know, or myself, I'm sure that he was hurt. I'm sure there was devastation. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure there could have been anger. Maybe not lashing out at her, but maybe within. I mean, this guy, he has saved himself for her. He has been faithful He's now in a betrothal period and he's ready to be married to her. And she shows up, I'm pregnant. Oh, and by the way, this pregnancy is special. It's from God. I personally think that maybe Joseph cried harder that day than he had ever cried in his life. So what do we do? What does he do? Well, in today's society, imagine this happens today. You're a teenager, you're engaged, and the girl turns up pregnant. Well, in our society today, what the socially acceptable thing to do would be to give, the guy would give the girl $200, she would go down to the local Planned Parenthood and have an abortion. It's easy, quick, 
cheap, and just like that, the problem has gone away. And over a half a million girls do it every year for unwanted pregnancies. I'm so thankful that there was no Planned Parenthood in Nazareth, right? This is not an option for them. See, Joseph's dilemma is a little different. It says in verse 19 that that he was a just man. He was an observant Jew, and he was under the law, and he had every right to divorce Mary for unfaithfulness. As a matter of fact, the law actually forbid him to marry her under those circumstances. But this is what I love about Joseph. And what I believe when I read through here is that he loved her. Even though he thought she had been unfaithful, he loved her. His love covered her shame. And I think that's how verse 19 says it. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame. See, Joseph is a just man, a righteous man. That means, hey, I want to do the right thing in the eyes of God. And he doesn't want to put her to shame. Which means that, hey, although you had been unfaithful to me, I don't want to humiliate you. I'm going to just separate quietly. Because basically, according to the law, this is what he had the options to do. He could divorce her publicly. And what he would do is he would take her before the judge at the gate of the city. And then the entire town would hear and know what this problem was. And she would be put to shame. Or he could divorce her privately. He could give her papers in the presence of two witnesses. And what that would do, the second option, would spare Mary the humiliation of a public divorce. So this is the dilemma, if you will, that Joseph found himself in. The girl that he loves, the one that he has waited for, the one he's willing to spend the rest of his life with is now shown up to be unfaithful. And Joseph says, I have no other options. So I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the righteous thing. I'm going to spare her a life of humiliation. And while we often want to defend Mary through this, I often think there's something to be said of Joseph. Because I think that he truly loved her. He was willing to do this for her, even though she had been unfaithful to him. Of course, we know she's not unfaithful to him. That God has other plans behind the scenes. Joseph's getting ready to find that out. Look at, secondly, the dream. Verse 21. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So according to verse 19, he has this, he's made the decision, I'm going to divorce her quietly, but then he doesn't. Like, there's no verse that says he actually went before two witnesses to fulfill that divorce. And what I love here is there's no time frame given between verse 19 and verse 20. Only thing we have is the phrase, but as he considered these things. That, to me, it shows Joseph has slow feet. Joseph's a little sluggish about going through with the divorce. I don't know if it was one night. I don't know if it was several weeks. I don't know if it was several months. I will know this, that the longer he waits, the more pregnant she looks. So did the angel appear the night he made the decision? Was there some sort of time? We don't know. But I see Joseph. He says he's considering these things. He's struggling with this. 
And if I know he was like me, if he was like me in any way, he's racking his brain. How do I fix this? How do I find a solution that would make this better? One writer said it like this. It was a short but tragic struggle between his legal conscience and his love. Could there have been days? Could there have been weeks? Time was running out. And I wonder how many sleepless nights he actually had. Then one night it happens. An angel appears to him in a dream. Now, if an angel shows up in one of our dreams, we, we might consider that a little weird. We, whoa. Uh, may, it doesn't seem to be weird to Joseph. Uh, after the dream, he's like, this is what I'm going to do. This is from the Lord. Uh, Hebrews 1 tells us that in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. And in those many times, in many ways, uh, he would many times speak through dreams. Uh, so this was probably not too far out of the ordinary for Joseph. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God uses dreams uh, to speak to people. But the result of the dream is immediate. If you skip down to verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Like, it, it wasn't any more thought process behind it. It wasn't like, well, you know, God, you present some good points. I think I might think about this a little bit longer. Boy, what a testament to someone. When God speaks, you do it. Joseph needed assurance that Mary's not lying, and he's given that truth. See, he's, I know that he's longing to marry her, but he feels like, I can't go through with this marriage until I know that it's right, that this is from God. So God met him at his point of need at exactly the right moment. And so God tells Joseph here, or the angel tells Joseph in verse 20, the exact thing that he wanted to hear. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because she's not been unfaithful to you. This is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. But then, verse 21, the angel's not done. The angel says, And you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Joseph finds the message. He hears the message from God. This baby is from God. Now you can marry Mary, if you will. You don't have to have reservations anymore. And the angel tells Joseph, You actually get to name the baby. And I'm going to give you the name. The name is Jesus. In those days, naming a baby was a huge task. When Cheyenne and I were dating, uh, I told her the story of my name. My name is John William Lovelace, and it's the fourth. My dad has the same name. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, we all have the same name. And I told her, I said, I've always thought it would be cool to have a son and name him John William Lovelace the fifth. I said, because I've met other fourths, but I've never met a fifth. And she goes... Okay, what are we going to call him? And I'm like, well, I was called J.W. as a kid, and then it's J. My dad was John. He was Johnny as a kid. My grandfather was Jake. I said, my great-grandfather was named Jack. And she goes, oh, I love that name. I love Jack. So we decided we're going to name him John William Lovelace the fifth, and we're going to nickname him Jack. And now everyone wonders how you get Jack from John. And I said, talk to your parents and grandparents. They know. Uh, our other kids... Now we're having, we had the first one. And that was even before we got married. That's what we decided to name the first child. We had a beautiful girl name picked out. We've never had the opportunity to use that girl name 
four times, and it's, it's like, well, I guess we can give it to someone else. But we, we was like, what are we going to name the next child? Well, we both became teachers. And when you become a teacher, you lose a lot of names. I like this name. No, 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 no. I teach one of those. You do not want to name your kid that. What about this? And we, we would go through. And, and, and a couple of our, uh, the, the two kids in the middle actually had names that we both agreed upon that we were like, yes. Because I had students that had those names. I'm like, they're such great kids. Now I realize that my kids are in school and perhaps they're causing their young teachers to be like, I'm not naming my kid that. <laughs> but we thought about their names. And then the last one comes along and, and Cheyenne's grandfather was uh, cancer and he passed away and we asked if we could use his name. And so he got the name Henry from his grandfather and so from his great grandfather. So we spent some time thinking about their names, but we didn't do a lot of thinking other than just we like the name. In the Bible times, they spent a lot of time, and many of the Bible names given were done in such a way, I believe, through the Holy Spirit, because of the meaning that they carried. And I've said often before of what our kids' names meant. Uh, John means Jehovah is gracious. Cody's name means helper. Grant's name means great. Henry's name means rules his household. The baby of the fa- never mind. Over in Luke chapter 1, we have another Christmas story, actually the beginning of the Christmas story, if you will, the events surrounding the Advent. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 59, this is a story of, of a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They're related to Mary. Uh, we know the, this is the parents of what we know as John the Baptist. Okay, and in Luke chapter 1, verse 59, if you don't know the story, Zechariah is in the temple, he's offering incense, and an angel appears to him and says, hey, your wife's going to have a son. And he's like, my wife's too old. Well, she's going to have a son. Okay, well, then the angel strikes him, strikes him mute, like he can't talk. And so the angel says, uh, because you didn't believe, you're not going to be able to talk. So then they, they find out they're going to have a son. All right, now, verse 59, on the eighth day, Elizabeth has the child, and nine months later, Elizabeth has the child, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise him. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. See, iPads in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament. Asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. They were like, Your family doesn't have any Johns in it. How many of you have a family name? Like, you, you, your name comes from someone above you. Quite a few of you. Yeah. The family, it's, it's, why, why aren't you naming him a family? No, because I've been told to call him something else. The angel tells Joseph, this is what you're going to call the baby. You're going to call him Jesus. The Greek word Jesus is a translation of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Yeshua. Yeshua is what we commonly call Joshua. And the word Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. See, the message is clear. And the angel even says it. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Messiah had been promised for centuries. And the Jewish people are looking for a promised one to come to save us. 
But in these times, they're looking for a political savior. As we studied Daniel, we talked about the oppression that they would experience in the years before the events of the New Testament. That they had been under some tyrannical leaders uh, in these years before. And now the Roman rule is over them. They're pressing down on them. And Herod is in charge. We mentioned him a minute ago. And he's just got this hatred about him, this jealousy about him. So yes, oh, the Messiah, he's come to save us. No, the angel even mentions here, it's not his name shall be Jesus for he will save his people from Rome. No, it says he is Messiah, he is Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. This Messiah is more than what the Pharisees were looking for. This Messiah was coming to provide the way back to God. To pay the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And not just the sins of the Jewish people, but the sins of anyone who believes. After that, the angel's gone. Joseph wakes up. Now look at the results. Titled the first point, the dilemma. The second point, the dream. And I entitled the last point, the dad. Verse 24, I believe these are Joseph's finest hours. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Verses 24 and 25 are insufficiently celebrated as great Christmas verses. They reveal Joseph's finest qualities. He marries her very quickly. He breaks the Jewish custom and, and he protects Mary's reputation. Because why? Because she's pregnant and, and he, he's not the father. But he marries her anyway so, to kind of to, to gloss over that so that people don't start asking questions. Secondly, he kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. It says he knew her not. Means that he had no sexual relationship with her until after the baby was born. What is he doing? He's protecting the miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit against slander by unbelievers. And then it says, and he calls his name Jesus. And he names the baby. He exercises a father's prerogative and officially takes him into his family as a legal son. And the only thing I mention about these two verses is that it's told like a man would tell it. It's short and to the point. I saw the dream. Mary, I'm going to marry you. I'm, we're going to protect you. I'm going to name the baby. That's it. Bloop, 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 done. Right? Short and to the point. Let me talk to you a few minutes more about this man, Joseph. See, we often give more attention to Mary, and rightly so. But I think Joseph deserves credit too. Because Joseph, to me, is a model of a man of faith. He struggled with doubts. He, he was persuaded to believe what God had said. And then he immediately acted upon that persuasion. And in those moments of confusion, Joseph is a wonderful model of what a godly man looks like. Because he's tough when he could have been weak. He was tender when he could have been harsh. He was thoughtful when he could have been hasty. He was trusting when he could have doubted. And he was temperate when he could have indulged himself. You think about the story that happens through here, and you see that Joseph could have easily, rightfully, legally gone a different direction, and this entire beginning would have changed. But he didn't. Men, could we say the same thing about our lives? 
Are we tough-minded, determined to do what is right, no matter what it costs? Are we tender with our wife and children, or are we harsh? Are we thoughtful, taking our time to make important decisions? Or are we quick to jump to conclusions and quick to say things that we regret later? Are we trusting even though we think we could figure out a better way to do things? Or are we temperate and considerate of our wife and her needs? Or do we pressure our wives and children to perform up to our standard of perfection? There's one other thought about the kind of man Joseph was. As I mentioned, he's only there at the beginning. We see him again when Jesus is 12. As a matter of fact, the only things we know about Jesus' childhood, Joseph is still around. The next time we see Jesus, Jesus is in his 30s and Joseph is never mentioned again. When Jesus grew up, began his ministry. In the Old Testament, God was known as God. God was known as Yahweh. God was known as the, the great Almighty. It's not until we get to the New Testament where we find another word for God. See, when Jesus began his ministry, he chose one word above all the others to describe what God is like. See, Jesus called his God Father. And I started to think, where did, Joe, where did Jesus learn about fathers? From Joseph. So again, I speak to the men. The way your children respond to God depends largely on the kind of father you are. And you can teach them something about God every day just by the way you live in front of them. Now, we kind of skipped over verse 23. I want to go back and I want to look at those words. Look at verse 22, actually. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. See, the angel has just told Joseph, you're going to name the baby Jesus. He's going to save the people from their sins. And then Matthew, writing this story, writing this event down, says, hey, this was to fulfill a prophet. This was to fulfill something that, that I heard and I've read from a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, by, the, by, by a prophet by the name of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7 Isaiah writes this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's the promise. There's the prophecy, if you will. And you think, well, who could that be fulfilled in? There's only one person who was born of a virgin. Jesus Christ. Wait! It says call his name Emmanuel. It doesn't say Jesus. Did the angel get it wrong? No, he didn't. See, Matthew actually sees it. Look at verse 23. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And then you guys have the parentheses there. That's Matthew interjecting a little bit, saying, oh, by the way, Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. God with us. God here in our presence. And see, that's what we need. We need both. We need the Savior, the one who's come to save us from our sins. But the only way God can do that is if he leaves heaven and he comes and lives among us. That's what John says. The word made his dwelling among us so that we beheld his glory. 
That's what Christmas is all about. That's what the the story of Christmas is. It's not just a baby in a manger. It's the fact that God steps onto this earth for you and for me. It's about the truth that God came down to earth in the person of this little baby. It's about the truth that Jesus is born of a virgin named Mary in a village called Bethlehem. And they don't even live there. It's about the truth that Jesus is the Savior. He's fully man, but he's Emmanuel. He's fully God. We call him the God-man. So this morning, we worship the Savior. We worship the promised one from God who was sent to save people from their sins. Even later on in Jesus' ministry, he reminds his followers why he was on earth. In Luke 19, he says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the way that he saves is by taking their place. He took my place. He took yours. And that baby that we celebrate in the manger, and the songs that we sing about the manger, let us never forget that Jesus Christ was born to die. To die for you, to die for me. And so we don't celebrate Christmas without also celebrating his death and his resurrection. Without celebrating Easter. Because the same baby in the manger is the same person who hung on that cross. And so this morning as we close, we're going to take some time remembering that sacrifice on a cross. His broken body, his shed blood, Why? Because he loves each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, today, Lord, these these verses that record the story of Christmas, the story of your incarnation here on earth, are some of the most famous verses that we read, some of the most familiar verses that we know. God, help us to never lose sight of the truth, and that is you came for us. You came for me. Not because I deserve it, but simply out of your sheer love. Simply out of the fact that you're a great God. God, I thank you for your gift. I thank you for your your son. I thank you for the fact that I worship him as my Savior, I worship Him as my Lord. And I look forward to worshiping Him. God, I look forward to wrapping my arms around Him and hugging Him and just saying thank you for dying for me. As we remember His sacrifice today, Lord, I pray that You will just give us joy. Give us peace. Give us love. It's in Your precious name we pray. Amen.